You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Um, good morning, everybody. Um, just where people are getting in. Um, uh, first class of, of, I think it's going to be six classes here in Romans, then we'll hit pause and see if we want to continue kind of around the bend. Um, and even now, this class will be broken up some with, uh, with different things coming up with, with Advent and Christmas, and this will go into January and parish meeting and all that, kind of have all that. Hey, Frank. Um, so, uh, you know, just diving into Romans a little bit. I love to teach on Romans. I mean, joking with Kevin a minute ago. He left. Where's Kevin? Um, oh, there he is, back in the corner. Um, I know you're not supposed to say this, but, but why not? I mean... We need touch points, uh, and Romans is one of those touch points for me, and that's certainly not unusual. I mean, in the history of the church, when something significant has happened in the church, Romans has very often been a part of that. Um, uh, I didn't mean to go in here, and i got a lot to do, so let me do this quickly. Augustine was a, was, was a complete punk, um, uh, a young kid who had a great mom, Monica, who prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. And he just kept running and running and running and running and running. You know, Augustine of our hearts are restless until they rest in thee, Augustine. And, uh, and he was um, caught, not unlike Paul, you know, underneath the, uh, uh, on the road to Damascus. Um, and he heard the Spirit speak, take up and read, tole lege, tole lege, take up and read, take up and read. And he picked it up and he turned, you know, a lot of us have done this, right? You just open the Bible and say, Lord, if you're there, show me something. Opened it to Romans. And that's what started it for Augustine, the, the, the doctor of grace, as we call him. Um, if we have time, I might read something from Luther. This was also Luther who beat upon Paul. I love Luther. Everybody knows that. love that idea that he beat upon Paul day and night and just said, you've got to give me what's real here. This can't be all it is. He was a, a, a incredibly, incredibly scrupulous monk. I mean, scrupulous to the point of, you know, as a mental health guy, I would say, Definitely off, Martin. You are. You, you need to go to the hospital. Um, but he kept beating and beating and beating and beating. Exactly. Yeah, that Martin right there. Um, uh, until God showed him, and the gates of paradise were opened um, in the book of Rome, from the book of Romans, um, which will be in there today, at the very beginning, Romans one sixteen and seventeen. Um, others, uh, John Wesley. Um, love the story. You know, he made it to Georgia, like our Georgia, not Eastern Europe, Georgia, the one like right next door. Uh, not a good idea to use a pastoral position um, to try to get a girl, but that's what John wanted to do. Um, uh, like this girl, um, she didn't like him back, so he was giving out communion. He skipped her. <laughs> His, her dad saw it and said, like, I don't like you. And so he ran him back onto the boat, sent Martin, I mean, sent uh, John Wesley with his brother Charles back to England. Um, uh, on the way, he saw a bunch of Moravians. Um, they'd be kind of like, you know, it's a prayer group. That's what it was, prayer group. They were just praying and singing, um, and the boat was tossing and turning. It was a really bad storm. And the Moravians had something, like that peace which passes all understanding. And John had never seen that before. He had started the Holy Club, Came, you know, he was doing all the things that he was no, new to do, to do the right things. The founder of Methodism, here's the method in which you, you live in order to, uh, to know God and to be known by him. Uh, it didn't work. 
didn't work in Georgia, went on a mission trip, colossal failure, um, fell in love with a girl, wasn't loved back, made her dad mad, went back with his tail between his legs, walking on Aldersgate. Some of us have done this together uh, there, now a suburb of London, a bunch of, like, right before you go underneath an underpass. Um, I was there what, three, four, five years ago. Um, uh, and he heard more Moravians having a prayer meeting, reading from Luther's preface to Romans, not even the book. And that's where his heart was strangely warmed. Um, and then in the 20th century, in between the two world wars, uh, where Karl Barth, for instance, um, probably the best, certainly the most famous and significant um, theologian of the, uh, the 20th century, the disillusionment of the, the First World War. Europe was, you know, in the, the heels of the Enlightenment, where we're supposed to get better and better and better. Um, you know, now we've got it. We've been given the light, enlightenment. We've been given the way forward. Uh, there'll be no more war, because why would there be? Now we're smart. Now we know what we're supposed to be doing and how we're supposed to live. And then, especially in Europe, crash, the First World War, shattered everybody's idea. Everybody was like, what just happened? We're supposed to now be better people. We, we've got our philosophers. We've got our, our, our art. We have our culture. We know what we're supposed to do. World War I happened, but the theologians kept trying to say, no, a little bit better every day, little by little. And then um, Bart wrote a uh, uh, commentary on Romans in 1918. And as somebody else later said, and he dropped a bomb on the playground of the liberal theologians. And liberal in that sense is like the liberal enlightenment. Um, I don't mean that in the, the way we use it now, but... Um, Romans, you know, all over the place. So I love to teach on Romans, and today I'm a little bit, you know, what, excited and nervous just because I was telling May May before I came. It's like, you know, Romans 1, 2, and 3, ha! You know, and here I am taking up our time, our time uh, even telling the stories, but just to begin to engage the book of Romans and the power that's in it. Because power is going to be a big word, um, for the gospel is the power unto salvation for all who believe. Um, for as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Um, that's what we're going to pick apart, part of what we're going to pick apart today um, with Romans. So um, so without further ado, um, uh, here's something I want to do almost every week, I hope, some form of this, uh, a touch point, really for my own sake and sanity. Um, uh, what are we doing when we come to something like Romans? Um, we're bringing our, ourselves into the Word. Um, we're bringing ourselves into this, get kind of dramatic here, into this encounter as the sinning human with the God who makes us righteous, with the God who justifies, with the God who, who does his business with us when he wants to do something to us. And so we bring ourselves into this, um, uh, extending what we often know, and kind of back in that Bart story, this would be very much what was dropped on the playground of the liberal theologians from the Enlightenment, meaning the Enlightenment where we bring our reason and our best selves, where we, 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 we see what the problem is and we come up with solutions and we want to um, uh, act accordingly, something like that. And so there's you know, different ways you could call it. It's like the principle of extension or the principle of, of a... Of, uh, of supplementation. You can say whatever is good here in this world, well, God must be even better. And so if what's good here, well, then God must be all the more gooder, you know, all the goodest of the good. Um, uh, our best reason must approach something like what the wisdom of God 
would be like. Um, human power, human potency, human ability, human agency, human potential must be but a foretaste of all that which God could do. You know, we talk about the power that we have to, you know, take an engineering marvel or medicine or whatever else and just imagine what God can do. And so we're just kind of this continuum that wants to go along. This sense of um, uh, what's beautiful here um, just shows us what's beautiful in God, all the more so. Um, And Paul, you could say the theology of Romans, and that's what this class is going to be because it's just way too short where I can do a verse-by-verse study of Romans. Obviously, we're not going to be able to do that, but I hope it might encourage you to do that. It's worth grappling, or in Luther's language, beating on Romans and saying, you know, Lord, give me what's in here. You know, have that almost, um, as somebody else said, hang God on his own promise. You've promised that your Holy Spirit will show me what's true and real and actual. Let it be, Lord. I'm going to beat upon Romans to get out of this book what you want me to have. Um, Something like that is the encounter that we have. And we're going to look at the theology of Paul, theology of Romans, just kind of the, the way that Romans reads us more than we read it to come to a place that says the principle of, um, of extension. What's good here is just extended to think what the, the supreme good is out there. Paul wants to say no. In almost every single instance, he's going to say no. And it's in fact the opposite. Um, the wisdom of men is foolishness unto God. And what appears foolish to God um, uh, or what, what is wise for God would appear foolish to us. Um, what we think is power, uh, God has no regard for. Um, and what we think is weakness is where God says, that's where I'm going to show strength. Um, and then, of course, ultimately, when we get to a place of something like, when we are dead, we're actually in a place where God says, like, ah, now there's my kind of person. <laughs> that's what I can work with. Um, at the end of the rope, when we're not in a principle of extension, of agency, of potential, um, God is going to exactly say, there, that's where I'm present. Where others would look at it and say, absent, God says, nope, that's where I am. The cross being the best example. My God, my God, how could you have forgotten me? How could you have forsaken me? Where are you? You're not here. And God says, no, right there in that rupture of the ages. That's where God is going to be working. So something like that, I hope I say every week. Um, but lest we just uh, let me prattle on, let's read Romans, um, our parts of Romans 1, 2, and 3. We're not going to go through and, uh, and show each, um, undo each verse, but we are going to look and try to get a feel for the words of Romans. And we're going to look a little bit at the language and then look specifically at um, 16, 17, and then 2. Uh, and some parts of chapter two. Any thoughts there? Any questions? Sorry, I know I'm going so fast, and I'm going to try to slow down and stay clear. The book of Romans. This is how it starts. Um, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, um, set apart for the gospel of God, um, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. 
So pause. That was one sentence. <laughs> That's part of the problem. When you come to Romans, it's just like, oh my gosh. I mean, it's just like, I mean, everything, literally, we could do an entire class. I mean, like a semester's class in seminary on Romans 1 through 6. Um, the most dense introduction of all of Paul's letters. Um, but we're going to move on. We are going to come back to that a little bit, but, but let's move. Um, to all those in Rome who are loved by God um, and who are called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then skipping down, um, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Or, this is the ESV footnotes at the bottom, it's a better translation, I'll, I'll say why later. Or beginning and ending in faith, for as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith, or, that Greek could be translated, the one who by faith is righteous, the one who by faith is righteous shall live. We'll talk about that too. And then skipping down to the bottom of, of uh, chapter 1, going into chapter 2. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Always love that. Um, <laughs> foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, or condemn, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed." And then continuing in verse 6, He will render each according to his works to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good the Jew first, and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. And then to Romans 3, what we normally think of, I think, the culmination of these, uh, the revelation, um, like the class title was, the revelation of our unrighteousness, the law doing its final work. Paul does a mashup here, mostly from the Psalms, a couple other places from Isaiah. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written... None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps, asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And in the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law 
comes knowledge of sin. And then it's had to put a tag. Because in Romans 3.21, I mean, if you're going to burn something in your brain, think Romans 3.21. Because that's one of the great contrastative, it's a funny word, contrastative conjunctions in Paul. But now, because if everything before that, if that word, that next word, none are righteous, no, not one, all of us have sinned and fall far short of the glory of God. And if Romans 3.21 said something else like, and moreover, or, and also, and this and such, we would all be among those to be most pitied. But now, dot, dot, dot. And I'm not going to leave us where we're not going to have any good news today. Romans 3, 1, the second half of 1, 2, and 3, don't deliver us to good news. Um, Romans 3, 21 begins the story of the good news. The gospel of God, his gospel, um, the gospel of Jesus Christ, or just the gospel. Those are the four ways he describes it, even just these, these short verses. So, let's get a feel of just some of the language. Lord help me. Um, righteousness, righteous, and um, declare righteous. Justice, just, and justify. All these are the same words in in the Greek, and that's really important because you'll read one version, you'll say like, you know, it is God who justifies. That verb, you could also say, it is God who declares righteous. Um, the righteous would also be called the just. Righteousness would also be called justice. And so just to get the feel for what that is, we're in legal language. Um, a judge delivers a, a judgment about what is just or righteous or what is not just or what is not righteous. A judge administers justice or righteousness. He declares Something which is good is good and legal and just, or not good and illegal and unjust. This is what we can call ordinary righteousness. We understand this. This is the way of the world. This is the way of our hearts. This is the way of karma. This is the way of, of, uh, of, um, of tit for tat, this for that, um, of what comes around, goes around, of Ben Franklin. And there's, there's, let me be clear, there's nothing wrong with that necessarily, as long as we're clear on what we're talking about and where we're talking about it. Ordinary righteousness is what we think it is. Um, as somebody once said, to, to think about ordinary righteousness, you just be overwhelmed with what's obvious. Um, that uh, what does it mean to be righteous? It means to have righteousness. And how do you have righteousness? You do the things you're supposed to do, and you don't do the things you're not supposed to do. That's going to be the language we hear later in Romans 7, right? I don't do the things I, I want to do, and the things I do do, I don't, I, I don't want to do those. Unrighteous, if you're doing that. Righteous, if you do the things that you're supposed to do, think the things you're supposed to think, say the things you're supposed to say, and then likewise, don't say and speak and do the things which you're not supposed to do, right? I mean, just overwhelming you with obviousness. Um, Ordinary righteousness, extraordinary righteousness, unusual righteousness. In the, the Romans 3.21, I told you, I just can't, can't keep us just on the hook without any good news, because you might not come back. Um, but now, a righteousness from God, or in the language of 118, from heaven, has been revealed. Something which is now manifest, or revealed, or being shown, or is now among us, full of grace and truth. Uh, that righteousness from heaven, which is apart from the law, 
apart from the ordinary way, where now you have something so scandalous like a judge. And you would say, this is a bad judge. This is not a good judge. If a judge sits there and says, that person, you know, caught dead to rights, not good, unrighteous, does not possess righteousness, and I'm going to say, good. Okay, not guilty. I'm going to bestow righteousness or declare them just. That's the righteousness from heaven. That's the thing that Paul is not ashamed of when he's going to speak here in Romans 1.16. So I just want to begin to get, because when you're in Romans, you need to be, and a lot of lawyers here, so this is going to be good and easy, you need to get into the world of the, of the, of, of the law court. Um, it's not the only metaphor. All these are metaphors for the, uh, for the act of salvation. When God saves us, he's giving us something which he has, um, righteousness. And so that thing which he gives is righteousness. In ordinary righteousness, God gives the thing according to worth or potential. He recognizes, yep, Caroline, she's, she's, she's good. I'm going to sort of go ahead and supplement that. Remember that principle of extension? And let that sort of grow and become more. And Romans, over and over and over again, is going to systematically undo that and say, who does God justify? Who does God declare righteous? The ungodly, the weak, those who are still sinning, and those who are his enemies. The four conditions there in Romans 5. Um, uh, that's going to be the way we go forward. And just getting that clarity of, you know, this is a guy named Stephen Westerholm. Say all that just so you don't, you know, Gil's just making this stuff up. Um, uh, a guy named, he, he gives that language, that distinction of ordinary and extraordinary righteousness. I'm, I'm absolutely borrowing straight away from him. Um, getting that clear as we come down to, uh, for instance, Romans 1, 16. Um, let's start there. I'm sorry, it's so warm. Um, Romans 1, 16 and 17 are typically seen as the... Uh, Paul's thesis statement, the summary of the, the theme of Romans. Um, so let's read that again. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is, it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, and then he quotes something from Habakkuk of all places, the righteous shall live by faith, which is also quoted in Galatians and Hebrews. Um, so what is Paul not ashamed of? This extraordinary righteousness um, that he's going to call the gospel. Um, and you ask, what is the gospel? The gospel is the place, uh, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, where God wants to give something that he has that we don't have. In this instance, righteousness. The other metaphors would be stuff like um, uh, adoption, you know, some, from a family language. So you have a court the world of the courts, you have the world of the family. Um, he makes us living stones from the world of construction, um, uh, from the world of, um, of sort of government and what we would call now uh, uh, what, jurisdiction. People who weren't a, a citizen now are a citizen. People who weren't a people now are a people. Um, all those are metaphors, descriptions of the event of salvation. Um, what God is doing when he's doing that thing that he most wants to do in terms of saving us from ourselves, from the world, the flesh, the devil. 
his law and sin. Um, so Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. So even that word, power, um, some of y'all know I like this word so much. It's the word we get, where we get the word dynamite. There's just the, the, the dynamis, the dynamite, the, the power of God for salvation for all who believe. And Paul's going to say a lot about that. So how do I come to this belief? Um, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or to the non-Jew. Because he's going to make it where, um, you know, we could say there are eight billion denominators um, where every single person is unique. Um, or you could divide it to north and south. And so there's four billion denominators. Those are living, you know, for simplicity's sake. Or there's two. There's a denominator of two. There's male and female. Or there's Jew and Greek. Or there's um, slave and free, as he does in Galatians. Paul's going to say there's a denominator of one. Everybody alike is under sin. A single denominator um, is what we all are. Uh, salvation for everyone who believes, denominator of one, for the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, shown from faith for faith. Why is that better to say from the beginning through to the end? Because whatever this gospel is, this power of God unto salvation for all who are given belief, who are faithed, it's what starts that life, and it's what ends that life. And so as you move the whole way through that life, it's the same power that sustains that whole life. From faith, it starts at faith, to faith. It starts at an origin, and the same thing ends at the destination. From and to, echinice. Um, uh, from faith to faith. For as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Why is it? Better, perhaps, to follow the ESV's footnote there. And the one who by faith is righteous shall live. Because you can come through all this, and some of us know this, bringing this into Romans. is like, I know. Um, justification or being declared righteous. Remember, we've got to use both words just to kind of give a full understanding of that word. Is by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone. You know, all the Reformation sole and all those different words that we use. Love them. But sometimes it feels like faith is that last work, that one thing which is God says, like, now you've been given faith, use it and use it well, because that's the thing that's going to sort of describe and direct and fuel your life. And Paul, even there, wants to say, no, that's not it. For the righteous um, shall live by faith does not mean uh, the righteous shall live by this now this... Um, this struggle for the words, this power, this substance, this fuel pack, this battery, this, this, uh, this, this, this mode of being, uh, somehow that that's what's going to carry us through. No, remaining 100% dependent upon God in Christ 100% of the time from the beginning all the way through to the end. The righteous, one who is declared righteous by faith, shall live. So now we ask, what is faith? Here's a good way to end. Um, the gospel. Um, I didn't make any of this stuff up. I'm just trying to do something to pull all this stuff together. What is the gospel? It's the declaration. This is where I almost just cry. I mean, I can just weep. You know. So simple. The gospel says in an extraordinary way, remember the difference between ordinary righteousness, where we'd expect the judge to say, like, I know you're pretty good, but that doesn't matter. <laughs> 
remember that one time, or that six times, or that one time last minute, you know, or whatever it is. If the law is doing its work, it's, there's no curve. And the gospel simply says, no, it's a righteousness that's a different way. And the gospel is the word of God after the law does its work that says, I love you. In full sight of who you are, the gospel is God's word of I love you. And Romans 5 helps a lot here. I love you. And how am I going to show that? Now to make it really a Christian righteousness. There's a real specific word here. Um, This isn't just sort of faith like, you know, in the mall around Christmas, you can buy, you know, just little signs that say faith. <laughs> That's great. Um, could be worse. I mean, absolutely. I'm trying to be fair. Um, but we got to say faith in what? In Christ. Um, or really faith through Christ. Because how does God show us, demonstrate his love for us in this? While we were yet sinning in the middle of my most um, heinous act, uh, he died for us. He showed his love in this world by coming. So the gospel is God's word of, I love you. And what is faith? This is beautiful. I mean, this is what is going to turn me in this series, I can tell. Faith is being loved by God. Faith is the experience, the, uh, the sense of, uh, I didn't do anything. I'm not doing anything. And yet I'm still loved. Um, it's kind of like this room is really warm. When did that happen? When did that happen? And you don't know. You just know, like, this room got warm. You didn't sit there and say, like, hey, the room is getting warmer. It's in the past. You're like, I'm starting to feel uncomfortable. I got a little sweat, you know, and it just happened. That's a good analogy to something like what the experience of being loved is by your wife, by your child, by, by your God. Gospel is God's word. He loves you. And faith is that it's no work, it's not something we do, it's just the sustaining experience of being loved by God. I didn't mean to go here, but I can't not. Lame is, you know, um, love it, love the play, love the book, love everything about it, except what an awful way to end. Um, uh, you know, this huge finale, and it's um, uh, who's the one that's going, who died, the, the mother, Fantine? Fantine, she comes back. And with Valjean, they're going to heaven, to the world. And it's, you know, swelling, and you hear the the ascending notes, meaning you're going up, you're going up, you're going up, you're going up. And it says, to love another person is to see the face. And I've always like, no, to love. And it's like, and then it turned um, to be loved by another person is to see the face of God. The experience of it happening to you, where we're in the reception We're in the passivity. You suffer God in all of the best sense. That's what faith is. Faith is the experience of God loving you. While you're yet sinning, while you're weak, godless, and his enemy, he loves you anyway. And it changes you all over. So let's just end here. Um, Didn't do a very good job of talking about what I thought I was going to talk about, but that's all right. Um, It's just hoping to peek it. So here's, I mentioned the four people, Augustine, Luther, Wesley, and... and, um, uh, and Bart, and, and it could be you, it could be me. A lot of us have experiences in Romans. Um, well, here's what, what, what Luther did. He wrote what's called his autobiographical fragment. Um, uh, a year before he died, he was looking back, and so some of this isn't quite right. We don't, um, somewhere around, um, the, the, he nailed the 95 Theses in 1517. Somewhere 1515 to 1518, 
he had something like this. And you know where it might have happened? A few of us have been here too in, in Wittenberg. Uh, it might have happened in the bathroom. <laughs> it's called us also sometimes his Koloeka moment, um, which is funny because he had, especially that time of his life, he was not well, not healthy. He spent a lot of time in the this is an awful thing. He spent a lot of time in there. And the Spirit might have sort of opened him up at that point. Um, to uh, I didn't mean that as a pun, but that was pretty funny. Um, uh, opened the word to Luther, uh, whether it was there or certainly somewhere in the former monastery. And here's how he wrote it. I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way except this one expression, the justice of God or the righteousness of God. Um, because I took it to mean that justice whereby God is just and deals justly with punishing the unjust, ordinary righteousness. My situation was that, although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. If faith is what we're supposed to bring as kind of the, quote, last work, even though we don't call it that because we know we're not supposed to have any works of the law, but that's how we operate in this world, in our flesh. We can't love a God who's going to administer that kind of justice and judgment because I know that I'm not going to be found an exception. None is righteous. No, not one. Um, uh, Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies or declares righteous us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through the open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet, greater in love. This passage of Paul became to me the gate of heaven. And he goes on some other places. Um, Romans. It's a great book. Um, Ordinary justice, extraordinary justice. Um, God loves you. He demonstrated his love for you in this. While you were yet sinning, he died. Faith is not something we do. It's not the last work. It's it's just simply being loved by God. Um, Following that language, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will continue to do his work on each of us from faith to faith. So let's pray. Lord, um, take these words hastily and, uh, and feebly offered, and by your, by your grace, by your gospel, um, uh, uh, let it return uh, a, a harvest that far exceeds anything we could ask or imagine. Um, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at Advent Birmingham.